Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. You can find it on page 1001 in the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of of some things that I think we have a tendency to forget. One, this is not a story about us. This is God's story that we are a part of. Right? This is not some guidebook for better living. This is not some manual to help you to live your best life now in any way, though there are certainly implications for us on every single page. When we come to Scripture, we do not come to behold ourselves. We come to behold God. That's key. I heard someone say once that, you know, Scripture is like an ultrasound. And of course, I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean? The Scripture is like an ultrasound. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, when you're expecting, your wife is gone, she's taking these pregnancy tests, and, you know, it's come back positive, but the whole thing is so surreal. Like, it's just hard to wrap your mind around the fact that you are now expecting a kid. And so you go to the doctor's office, you know, and they usher you into this room, and they do all this stuff to kind of prepare her, and then they direct your attention to a screen, and you start to see images, right? You're looking, and suddenly you're just like, wait, wait, what's that? And the doctor says, that's a hand. You're like, wow, that's amazing. And the doctor moves it around a little bit, and you're like, what's that? You know, and like, that's a hand, or that's a foot, that's a leg. Doctor moves around a little further, and you're like, what is that? And the doctor says, that is a boy. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know. The doctor moves it a little further, and you, you begin to see these rhythmic movements, right? And so you ask, what, what is that? And the doctor flips on the, screen, the, the, the speaker, and you begin to hear the heartbeat. And tears begin to well up in your eyes because you are hearing life. What was just a few moments ago so surreal, so just hard to to wrap your head around, suddenly is as certain and as palpable as your own flesh and blood. So the doctor moves it a little bit further and you see this little round head. Her eyes and her nose and her mouth. And all that you can think of in that moment is, I cannot wait to see your face. I want to hold you. I want to see you. I want to cherish you. Because you know the time has not yet come. That baby, it's not that time for the baby to arrive. But you know with certainty, Lord willing, that that baby will come. And you are just so looking forward to the day when at last you can see that baby face to face. When we come to Scripture, that is what it is meant to do for us. To help us to see God. To cherish Him and to long for Him. The living, active, abiding, and imperishable word is meant to do that. And even more than that, because the child itself is 
Jesus, the Word made flesh. And so when we gather together as a church, what we are to do, we are to be like those doctors and nurses who behold and who help others to behold the glory of this coming one. That's what we're to do. And so why then is there such a focus among professing Christians and among churches on who we are and what we do. We gravitate towards passages that give a lot of practical application. It says, you know, this is what you should do. This is who you should be like. And we kind of steer away from those passages with deep theological truth. We, we cater to personal wants or feelings rather than proclaiming the glory of Christ. We sing shallow songs that are all about us and what we're going to do for God rather than sing of the depth and the riches of what He has done for us. We teach new believers. Okay, you got to read your Bible and you got to pray. You got to go to church as religious obligation rather than as the means through which they commune with God. Pragmatism overshadows sound doctrine. We preach morality. We preach how-tos. We preach practical application to the neglect of eternal glorious truth that transforms the heart. That's why you won't see a whole lot of churches today preaching through the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ, who he is and what he has done, how he is superior to all others in authority and power and status. It's not about who we are or what we do or or how we think that we can keep God's law. But just like that ultrasound, there is no greater way for us to open eyes and hearts to reality. There's no greater way for us to encourage a yearning and a longing and a hope for life now and for our future eternal glory than to do this, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what Hebrews is all about. And last week, we were looking at the first verse and a half of of this book, and we saw that God has spoken to us by His Son. And today, we're going to continue on through verse 4, again, seeking to hear from God as to who this Son is and what He has done. And though it may not give a word to who we are and what we do, let me make this abundantly clear to you. There is nothing that is more essential for our faith in Jesus. And so what we're going to see this morning from the second half of verse 2 through verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 1 is that because of His, the Son's nature, work, and status, we can rest in a superior glory. Because of the Son's nature, work, and status, we can rest in a superior glory. And may we rest in His superior glory as we read Hebrews chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now on the surface, this passage seems to have little to do with us because it's all about who Jesus is and what he has done according to the very voice of God the Father. But honestly, friends, nothing could be more practical because the biggest mistake that we make in life is to take our eyes off of Jesus and to place them on ourselves. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we place them on ourselves, we tend to end up drifting away from who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And when we drift away from who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we have lost the Christian faith altogether. No matter what we profess to believe or what we think that we do for God. And so nothing is more essential for us. We cannot be saved if we get the person and work of Christ wrong. And so we need to listen to these words which God has spoken to us so that we might truly know the Son. Now, before we we begin to unpack the passage, I just need to point out something about the structure of this text as a whole. Okay, now, this passage was written to the Hebrews, hence the name Hebrews, right? Written to a bunch of Jewish Christians who were tempted to turn away from Jesus and kind of go back into Judaism. And so because it's written to Hebrews, it contains literary structures that are familiar to the Hebrews, and one of them is known as a chiasm. And this should show up here on the screen so you can see this. Now, if you've ever taken our foundations course on biblical hermeneutics, then this should be familiar to you. If not, don't worry, we've got one coming up in the fall, right? But this passage forms a chiasm, and what this is is a is a formation of parallel lines that mirror and develop one another. Um, You see here up on the screen, lines A and A1 focus on the son's status, right? He was appointed heir of all things. He is superior to angels. The name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, right? If you move one step to the right, oh, let me just say these lines, we need these lines together because they interpret one another. Okay, now you move to the right there, you got lines B and B1, and they focus on the son's work, that he created the world, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he made purification for sins, okay? And then the inner lines, C and C1, tell us of his nature, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, in a chiasm like this one, the central idea is there in the middle 
and all the others build off of it. you got to get what's in the middle, and, and everything else supports that idea, right? And so we're going to talk about his status, his work, and his nature, but we are going to start with the central idea and work our way out just like this chiasm does, okay? So that's, that's why we've got the weird order that I'm going to, to deal with this morning. And so first of all, let's consider his nature, Though there are some people out there who actually doubt whether or not Jesus even existed and want to treat him as a mythical creation on the level of a minotaur or a winged pegasus, most people in the world today would agree that Jesus was a human, right? Many would even say he was an inspired teacher. Still others would go one step further and say, no, he was even a prophet of God, right? Now, they may deny his deity, but no one seems to question his humanity. But others throughout the century would call themselves Christians, and yet they would question how divine Jesus really was. Was Jesus the first created being? Right? So he's more powerful than all else. He had all of this power. God used him to create the world, but he's still less than God the Father. Was Jesus a man who at some point in his life was just kind of going through the motions, sort of doing his carpentry work when, when God endowed him with, with some supernatural abilities, supernatural qualities for a period of time in his life? And so he's basically a demigod on the level of Hercules, right? Was was God, or was he only 50% God? Was he subordinate to the Father in his being in some ways? I mean, this is tough stuff that the church has been wrestling with and people have been wrestling with ever since Jesus appeared on the scene. How do we make sense of all that the Scripture teaches about God, right? We, we, how do we understand the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit? I mean, Scripture clearly affirms that there is one God, one true and living God, and that all other gods are false gods. They're not gods at all. But how can the Father be God, the Son be God, and the Spirit be God, and there not be three gods? Right? Now, we have quite a few systematic theology lectures devoted to this in our foundations courses. We're not going to be able to look at all of it th- now, this morning, but this passage is helpful for us to think about that question. How do we wrestle with the humanity and the deity of the Son? It says there in verse 3 that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And again, these two statements are in parallel, so we need them to interpret one another. The exact imprint of his nature is the radiance of the glory of God, okay? We're looking at those in parallel. But what does it mean that he's an exact imprint, right? I mean, that word is like casting a coin with someone's face on it. So if you pulled a quarter out of your pocket right? You would see the bust of George Washington. Well, that quarter is clearly not George Washington, right? Represents George Washington. Maybe it reminds you of certain qualities, what, you know, what he looked like, who he was, what he did, what he stood for. It's a way of honoring George Washington, but that quarter is not George Washington. If you thought that that quarter was George Washington, they would escort you to the nearest loony bin, right? 
But is that what it means, that, that Jesus is a representation? Is that all the Son is, a representation like that quarter to show us what God is like and what He has done? A human representation of God. Well, that may be where you land if that's what you focus on. See, we have this tendency to kind of get myopic and narrow-sighted when we come to passages like this and really fixate on one thing to the neglect of the others. But it says that he is the exact imprint of what? Of his nature. It doesn't say that he's the exact imprint of God's character. It doesn't say that he's the exact representation of what God has done or what God stands for. And let's remember who is saying this. It is God who is saying that my son is the exact imprint of my nature. Right? And this word nature is used to describe our ontology, our, our being, our substance, who we are as beings, right? So me, my nature is not that I'm a pastor. My nature is not that I'm a husband or a father. My nature is not that I love God, that I love my family, that I love this church, that I love baseball or Jeeps, right? My, my nature is not what I happen to stand for or what I value. My nature is that of a human being. I am a human being, right? Anybody question that? Okay, good. We're on the same page. <clears throat> and my children are exact representations of my being, right? They are human beings who think and act like me. They represent me, though Cole is probably the one that looks like me the most. It's hard for my kids to look like me when they don't have dark hair and beards, but Nevertheless, they are exact representations of my being. But in being exact imprints of my nature, they are not little photos of me. Right? They are not little picture pop-up books that tell a story about me. They are not 124th scale little bobblehead dolls with voice boxes that tend to parrot some of my most memorable sayings. Right? No, they are distinct, but they are exactly like me in being. Human beings beget human beings. They don't beget dogs or horses or cats, right? And in the Son, God the Father has begotten God. It doesn't mean that there are now two gods, because remember the context here. The author is arguing to these Jewish Christians who are tempted to turn away from Jesus, being led to think, well, you know, maybe he's not. Maybe he was just a man and we're missing something, and so we need to return back to, to Judaism. This author is arguing that Jesus is more than just a man. He is the eternal Son of God, okay? The Son cannot represent God to human beings unless he shares in the being, the nature, the essence of God. The Son of God reveals the reality of this one true God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. 
And we understand this line better when we look at the other line, right? That he is the radiance of the glory of God. Friends, you cannot separate God from his glory, right? How do I know this? Try describing who God is, what he's like. Well, you know, God, God is self-existent, aspect of his glory. God is self-sufficient, glory. Well, you know, God spoke and the worlds were made. God is good. God is holy. God is righteous. God is love. Glory, glory, glory. Can't separate them out. They're all descriptions of God's glory. And the word glory itself means brightness. It means radiance or splendor. Majesty, grandeur, magnificence, power, fame, renown, honor, prestige, dignity, and preeminence. Anything that we can know about God is related to his glory and is only conveyed to us because of his glory. You can't separate them. The glory of God is the radiance of who God is. And the sun, according to this passage, is the radiance, the outshining, the effulgence of who God is. And so through the sun, we see God's glory. There is distinctions, but they are inseparable. Maybe, maybe think about it this way. The sun is 93 million miles away from the earth And the light that emits from the sun takes eight minutes to reach the earth. Now, you cannot separate the light from the sun, right? The only reason we know that there's a sun is because of the light. No light, no sun. No sun, no light. They're inseparable. You can't divide them in any way. The brightness issuing from the sun is of the same nature that the sun is. Never was the sun without the light that issues from it. Where there's no sun, there's no light. And where there's no light, there is no sun. And the same is true with the Father and the Son. Yes, they are distinct, but as inseparably one as the sun and sunlight. Eternally one. The sun radiating, emitting, communicating the glory of God. Not by painting a picture of the glory of God for us, because he is the effulgence, the emission of God's glory. And so without Christ, man is in the dark, utterly in the dark concerning God. We cannot rightly understand him. We cannot rightly believe anything about God's nature, character, purposes, and promises apart from a right understanding of who Jesus really is, both fully man and fully God. Okay? It's not enough to just say, hey, you know, I believe that there's a God out there. We have to see him in the Son. Okay? It's in Christ and only in Christ, the co-eternal Son of God, that God Himself is revealed in all His splendor. And this is why our church fathers labored so hard for so long to craft this statement about our triune God. It should appear up here on the screen. This is the Nicene Creed, right? Um, I'm going to read it to you, but as I read it, I want you to listen for echoes of Hebrews chapter 1 in it, okay? Okay? 
The Nicene Creed states, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through Him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And since we are Trinitarian here, I've got to include the last part, right? That I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. My friends, in reading that, did you hear echoes of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? I think it was in front of them when they penned this statement. Understanding the nature of the Son is essential for a true and right faith in Christ. If you don't get who He is, you cannot worship Him in spirit and in truth. Right? He will not be honored in your feeble attempts to praise Him if you get Him wrong. You worship Him as a fuzzy pink elephant... He's not going to be happy. And if you believe that he was just a man or less than God the Father, something less than God, you will be looking to something else as a means of your right standing before God. Right? If Jesus was just a man, you're immediately going to begin to question, okay, how do we know that his teaching is any more pleasing in the eyes of God than that of Gandhi or Martin Luther King? And so what happens is that you begin chasing the notion of a social gospel where if we do enough humanitarian good, then God will be pleased with us. We've seen that happen throughout the course of history. And when you get the nature of the Son wrong, you will have no certainty in His work. No certainty in the sufficiency of His sacrifice. You see, if you don't get His true nature, then second, you won't be able to comprehend His work. When we take steps outward from that chiasm, we move from His nature then to His work. In verse 2c, it says, through whom God created the world. Verse 3c, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And verse 3d, after making purification for sins. Now, just in thinking about that right there, these three statements regarding the son's work are irreconcilable with the notion that Jesus was just a man or a prophet. Because prophets don't create the world. Prophets don't uphold the universe. Prophets cannot make purification for sins. But what's even more amazing about this statement is that 
This author is saying this about a man who only a few decades earlier died a horrible, excruciating death on a cross in Jerusalem. So how could he arrive at that conclusion? How could he say that this is who Jesus is unless he's out of his mind or God spoke? And that's what we learned last time, right? We can be certain that this statement is true because this is what God says about his son, his nature, and his work. God has declared this to be true. And so with regard to his work, God affirms, first of all, that the son was the agent of all creation. Now, Bible quiz in the Old Testament, who are we told dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times created the world. You don't have to know a whole lot to know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And that answers the second question, who alone is able to create all that there is, right? Because last time I checked, I mean, I've tried this before, you know, because you just put it to the test, right? Just speak things into being, As much as I want that to be true, it hasn't happened yet, you know? Even little things like coffee, you know? (laughs) Occasionally my wife will make it for me, but that was not because of me, right? But yet, here we have, through the Son, God created the world, right? The New Testament over and over again affirms that, yeah, though God alone is the one that can create the world, we have passages like this one that affirm that God created the world through his Son, through whom he also created the world. John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, yet for us there is one God the Father from whom all are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so, if God alone can create all there is, and the Son is the co-creator of the universe, and all of it belongs to him and is for him, then that means that the Son is equally eternal, equally God, equally powerful to do what only God can do. And that intensifies by what is said next there in verse 3. That not only did God create the world, but that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Guys, ponder this. In fact, I would encourage you this week to make it your goal to memorize the first four verses of Hebrews. But meditate on this fact. It is not as though God simply created the world to operate through natural law, and that he just wound it up and then let it go, and that he stands back uninvolved, uncaring, unconcerned about the creation that he has made. You cannot be a deist and hold to this text 
No, this passage affirms that the eternal Son of God is actively bearing up all there is by the word of His power. That He, right now, is preserving. He is sustaining. He is governing. He is upholding all that there is. You think about how big this is, right? The stars in the heavens The wind and the waves, the mountains and the seas, everything that walks, everything that swims, everything that flies, every beat of your heart, every breath that you take, everything that has ever existed in the course of existence is upheld, has been upheld, will be upheld by the word of his power. And I'll never forget when someone in this church got this for the first time. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but Caleb and I were were meeting with him at Starbucks. and, And we read this quote from John Calvin that said that if God were to remove his hand but an inch, everything would cease to exist. Again, I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to even try to act out who it was because you might figure it out. But... That was a watershed moment for him. Because for the first time, he came to see the intimate nearness of this glorious and transcendent God of all the universe toward him. He does that in me, to me, for me. That breath that I just took, That was from him. That beat of my heart as possible because he is right now upholding my life by the word of his power. The God who spoke and who formed the universe is the same God who speaks to sustain and to uphold your very existence. And when we get that, it's really, really hard to make much of ourselves. Right? Or to think it's somehow about us. Again, this passage ascribes the clear work of God in the Old Testament to the Son. And why? Well, because He is God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, upholding all there is, including your life, right now, by the word of His power. He is intimately involved with every moment of every happening in the universe for the entirety of existence. So all that stuff that you're dealing with right now, you don't think he doesn't know? You don't think he's uninvolved or uncaring? It has been purposed by him for your eternal good as he continues to uphold your life by the word of his power. And Christ made you. Christ sustains you. And the third work of the Son that the author of Hebrews draws our attention to is that Christ 
has made purification for sins. If you want to know where we are in the text, it's right here. Sinners. Every one of us. Sinners. Those who have ignored, those who have rebelled, those who have rejected the God who made and who sustains us. Those who have failed to trust God, those who have delighted in other things more than Him, those who have tried to live our lives without Him as if this is my world and I am God. We are all sinners. But Christ has made purification for sin. And we're going to spend the next, or I mean, we're going to spend four chapters in the book of Hebrews dealing with this one issue. So I don't want to kind of give it all right now. I'm going to save, save some BBs for later. But I, I do want to say this. It is through repentance and faith in the Son and His perfect work on our behalf that has made us right with God. All that has made you unclean, all that has made you unworthy and unholy before God, all that has caused you to feel guilty and ashamed, compelling you to to cringe in the dark, all that has separated you from having hope and finding joy and being glad in God has been covered by the work of Christ. What you could never do for yourself, not in a billion good deeds or religious rituals, Jesus has done for you. He alone can purify. He alone can cleanse. He alone can purge us of all that has separated us from God. Past, present, and future. And notice the tense of the verb here. Said that he has made purification. So every sin that you have committed, every sin that you're committing, every sin that you will ever commit, Jesus has already made purification for it. It's done. There's no more to be paid. There's nothing left for you to do but to receive. You've got to understand this. This is what his perfect life, death, and resurrection has attained for all who would come to faith in him. A perfect purification for all your sin. I love the way that one author put it. He said, why has this wonderful and glorious being in whom all things are summed up and who is before all things the Father's delight and the Father's glory? Why has this This infinite light, this infinite power, this infinite majesty come down to our poor earth. For what purpose? To shine, to show forth his splendor of his majesty, to teach heavenly wisdom, to rule in just and holy right? No. He came to purge our sins. What height of glory 
What depths of abasement, infinite in his majesty and infinite in his self-humiliation and in the depths of his love. What a glorious Lord and what an awful sacrifice of unspeakable love to purge our sins by himself. Friends, do you want to know whether or not God loves you? That you could ever receive his love? It's got nothing to do with you because he made you and he sustains you and he has done for you what you can never do for yourself. He's purified you of all your sin. That's why he loves you. Because of who he is. Because of what he's done. And so you can receive it gladly. Receive it freely. Receive it in joy and delight and hope and love him because he has first loved us. This is who we worship and serve and this is why we worship and serve. The height of glory and the depth of love that the creator and sustainer of all there is who made and upholds our lives would pay the penalty of our rebellion against him. So this is who he is. This is what he has done. And so is it any wonder why then he has been exalted as Lord over all? You see, his nature and his work, third, confirm his status. When you look at this text the wrong way, you can easily get hung up and just sort of misinterpret what's happening here, right? I mean, you you read statements like, well, okay, he was appointed heir of all things there in 2B, or having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs in verse 4, and think that this is in reference to his being. As if Jesus, again, was just some lowly, humble Nazarene carpenter until... One day he hit the jackpot, you know, and the words of Napoleon Dynamite come to mind. Lucky, right? Wish that could be me. But when we grasp his true nature and his work, then these statements regarding his status make a lot more sense, right? Because if he's God, and if he made and sustains and has reconciled all things, then of course, he's Lord over all, right? And that's the logic that we've got to get. We realize that these statements regarding the dignity and dominion of the Son are in no way in reference to his deity or questioning his, working against his deity. If he's the only begotten of God, God of God, light of lights, radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, then it's not surprising that he would be called son or, or firstborn over all creation or heir of all things or that he inherited God's name, which is far more excellent than that of the angels. Now, I realize, guys, I realize that people do crazy things, right? You know, they leave inheritances to their animals, which is weird, you know, like Michael Jackson left two million to Bubbles, his pet chimpanzee, you know. Apparently Oprah Winfrey has set aside $30 million for her five dogs in the event of her untimely demise, you know. I mean, people do that kind of stuff. And, but obviously those pets are not able to do what their owners did, right? 
Maybe Michael taught Bubbles how to do the moonwalk, but I'm not anticipating seeing a music video of Bubbles singing Thriller anytime soon. No, you need the same being to do the same work. And to be heir of all things is to be Lord of all things, okay? Adam, think about how this worked in the storyline of Scripture. Adam is referred to in Scripture as God's son. He was given dominion over all that God had made, but he sinned. And so his status before God was marred. Israel was to be heir of God's promise, but Israel, God's people, they they were to be in God's place under God's rule and blessing, right? But they too sinned against God, and as a result of that, they brought reproach upon the name of the Lord. But Christ is the true heir. Christ is the second Adam. Christ is the true Israel, and he has obeyed his father perfectly. He has done the Lord's work perfectly because he is the one and only son. And so it is fitting then that he is given all that belongs to the Father. And what is he given? All things. It's far more than a promised land. He's given all things. Okay, well then why would God use the word appoint? Why would he appoint him heir of all things? Why would God appoint him heir of all things? Well, let's see. He made all things. He sustains all things. He's reconciled all things to himself by his blood, right? And so, uh, either for redemption or for judgment. And so this appointment was a part of, and you've got to get this, God's eternal plan from before the foundation of the world, which included creating, sustaining, and redeeming right? When did God do that? He did that before anything that existed, that we know of existed. And so this appointed heir of all things is not in reference to a change in his nature, but a declaration of his status as son. Before the worlds began, God appointed his son to be heir of all things by his creation, by his preservation, and by his reconciliation of all things to himself. Okay, well, what about this having become as much superior to angels, right? Because that makes it sound like at one point he wasn't superior to angels. Now he's become superior to the angels. Or what about having inherited this name that is more excellent than theirs? Well, I'm going to save most of that first part, you know, becoming superior to the angels for next time when we finish out chapter, the rest of chapter 1 because that's what it's all about. But let me just say now it's a fulfillment of Psalm 2. And so if you want homework for this week, go home and and read Psalm 2 alongside Hebrews chapter 1. And you'll begin to see what I mean. But this is, but with, with regard to Jesus having inherited God's name, I give my name to my son. Right? I don't give my name to pet or something less than me or, or to any random bloke that I pick out of the crowd, right? As if like, ah, you, you shall be called Chet Daniels, right? That's not going to work, right? Because one, I don't have the authority, the power, or the status to do that. And that guy's just going to look at me like I'm crazy, roll his eyes, and continue walking. But my children will receive my name, Right? They will inherit it. 
And again, this is coming from the one true and living God who will give His glory, who will give His name to no other. Right? Scripture affirms this over and over again. He's not going to allow his name to be tarnished. He's not going to give his glory to another. And yet here we see him in it, you know, giving his name to Jesus. What's that about? So for the son then to inherit this excellent name, it would have had to have always been his by right of who he is, by right of what he has done, because God will not give his name. He will not give his glory to another. Only God can bear the name of God. And that name is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor, both now and forevermore. And that name is Lord over all. And we see this, this lordship most clearly there in, in the end of verse 3. That after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The highest power, the highest seat, the highest glory, the highest of heights belongs to him. Friends, you and I, we may be able to go and take a tour of the White House, but you and I will never be able to go and just plop down at the desk the Oval Office, and conduct business. We might be able to take a tour of, you know, Tower of England, right, Buckingham Palace and all that, but no one is going to walk up to the Queen of England and say, pardon me, ma'am, and take a seat on her throne. We won't do that. Much less will any human be able to walk down the aisle of the throne room of God and take his seat upon the judgment chair of God. No one. And if Jesus were less than God, then this statement could not be true of him. He would have no more right to the throne of God than Trump's golden doodle or whatever that dog is has right to play commander-in-chief. No, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he is that majesty. He is that glory. And his sitting tells us three things. This is a posture of dignity, right? Superiors sit above and before inferiors who stand. We see him sitting, right? The highest of heights. Second, this posture is, uh, of sitting is an abiding one, right? He sat down because he's going to continue to do so. Nobody's taking that seat from him. It's his now forevermore. Right? He's reigning Lord over all for all eternity. That honor, that glory belongs to Christ forever. And third, this posture signifies rest, a completion of his work. It is finished. And so he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And friends, in verses 3 and 4, there's one verb 
And everything else is a participle that kind of fits off of that, that supports that one main verb. You want to know what that main verb is? It's he sat down. And so this is how you want to think logically about what verses 3 and 4 are telling you. Because the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, he sat down, revealing his true majesty to us. Because he upholds the universe by the word of his power, he sat down as sovereign Lord over all. Because he has made purification for sin, he sat down. And there is no longer any ransom to be paid. He has covered it all perfectly. And because he is superior to all others, inheriting a name that is more excellent than all else, he sat down at his rightful place for all eternity. Friends, that is his nature, that is his work, and that is his status. Christ our Lord. And so if that is true of who he is, and that's true of what he's done, and that his status is Lord over all, what is it that's preventing us from living in that reality? What is it that entangles us? What is it that keeps us from fixing our eyes on Jesus? Why is it that so many of our prayers or so many of our devotions or even so many of our worship services focused so much on us? Why do we make such a big deal about our feelings or, or what we think that we can get out of it or, or practical, pragmatic application without deep truth. Friends, could it be that we still want to fix our eyes on ourselves and so exchange true abiding love and intimacy with our God, our Creator, our Sustainer, our Savior and Lord for outward forms of religion that make much of us and what we supposedly do for Him. I believe that this temptation is pervasive in all of us. Even those who profess to believe in Jesus, we, we want to glorify who we are or pretend that we are somehow different than what we are. We want to trust in our works, in our abilities, in what we have done for God. We want to exalt our own status before God and before others. So then what do we do with this? Right. Friends, the problem with incorrect views of who Christ is and what He has done, our failure to find our rest and our joy, our hope, our life in Him stems from our attempts to exchange true worship of our Lord and Savior for lesser things. That we seek glory in something other than Him, if even in our supposed experiences of worship of Him. And so the solution for us is to rest in a superior glory. Friends, you are not God. 
That statement sounds ridiculous, but so often we try to live like it. It's the result of our sin nature that our attempts to be like God that have separated us from God. We try to be self-sufficient. We try to be independent. We try to do things our own way. We place our trust and our hope in ourselves in who we are rather than who He is. And so the solution then is to ponder His nature. He is God and I am not. But here's the thing about His nature. His nature regenerates our nature. Right? Though, because of who He is, He has overcome and is transforming who we are. And so we don't look to ourselves to make ourselves into what we want to be. We look to Him, and as we behold Him, we become like Him. Also, you must recognize that you cannot save yourself. Just like you couldn't bring yourself into existence, just like you have no ability to dictate to your heart or to your lungs what they are going to do, you cannot save yourself. All of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You cannot do enough good to purify your hearts from sin. But His work, the work of your loving Creator and Sustainer, can perfectly redeem you from your work. He alone can save. And finally, you are not Lord. You are not sovereign over your life. You are not in control of all things. You do not get to declare or pick or choose what is true, what is right, what is wrong. His glory is not subject to your personal preferences or what you get out of it. But here's the thing. His status secures our status. Because he is heir of all things, he has then freely made us fellow heirs with him of all things, provided we follow him faithfully to the end. And why would we not? Why would we object to obeying this Lord when we recognize that through him, God has also with him graciously given us all things? And so the solution is to rest in a superior glory. For Jesus to be our hope, our life, and our joy. That we don't have to keep anxiously striving to pretend to be what we're not or to do enough good that we feel okay about ourselves. We don't have to keep trying to kill ourselves to increase our status before God or before others or even on our own eyes because that glory that you're pursuing is a false glory. It's not a real glory. It doesn't even exist. You're spending your life chasing after a glory that cannot be attained because it's not reality. And it never will be reality. But his glory is. Because of his nature. Because of his work. Because of his status. So we must look to a greater glory. One that exists supremely. One that can do what we cannot. One who rules in justice and righteousness both now and forevermore. So the solution is this. 
that because of the Son's nature, work, and status, we can rest in a greater, superior glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now so that we might fix our eyes on Christ, so that he might be our hope and our treasure not just some word on our lips that occasionally we sing or occasionally we read about or occasionally we give some feeble manner of service to. Lord, I pray that we would see Him for who He is and that we would delight in all that He has done, that His glory would be our chief aim. Not by striving, not by laboring or exhausting ourselves, but by resting in who He is and what He has done. And the fact that He is our good and gracious Lord. May we hope in Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen.